Hi, this is Trek Tuesday, and I'm Tony Tolado. Today, Ben Robinson talks to me about his book, The Star Trek Deep Space Nine Illustrated Handbook, which he co-wrote with Simon Hugo for Hero Collector. And this is Sci-Fi Talk, the podcast on how sci-fi, fantasy, horror, and comics help us explore our humanity. Let's take a deep dive into the Star Trek Deep Space Nine Illustrated Handbook. Great book. I mean, from what I've seen, the amount of detail. Uh, again, you guys hit it out of the park, as we say here in the States. Uh, I don't know what the cricket analogy would be, but I'm sure there is. I think, really. Yeah, <laughs> the ground, into the car park. There <laughs> <laughs> you go. But uh, as far as research and what existed for Star Trek Deep Space Nine, were there any blueprints or anything that were detailed drawings that were still survived from Paramount that you guys could reference? Yeah, well, so most of the illustrations in that book were produced um, while the show was on air. So they, they're from uh, the, the semi-legendary Star Trek fact files. And we had um, a nice kind of production line where we would get the all the set drawings uh, directly from the production office. Uh, and we would be able to reconstruct the sets exactly that way. So uh, we had everything you could possibly have wanted. And I, I hope it shows in, in how we were able to produce the results that we did. There's more with Ben Robinson talking Star Trek Deep Space Nine Illustrated Handbook in a moment. What is so unique about the sets and the look of DS9, it's not a Federation outpost. It's a Cardassian outpost. And everything reflects that, the architect style. I think Ops makes it is easily one of the most unique bridge-like settings you ever saw in a Star Trek show. It is. And I'm, that Cardassian thing, I mean, there's a, a Joe Hodges um, is one of the set designers has a lot to do with that. My favorite thing um, Herman Zimmerman told me about Deep Space Nine is if you look at it from the top, uh, it's a Mercedes symbol. Oh. So they had this <laughs> idea of it being divided up into threes and that this was very much the Cardassian um, architectural theory. So there are a lot of, if you watch the show, there are a lot of things divided into three. Um, and those those round and oval windows, which are actually made from the same, uh, they carry the same kind of vacuum-formed mouldings that they could use. Um, and they, by taking the middle out or by crunching them up together, they were able to make different shapes. Wow, you know, I never knew that. I, I will definitely look at that more carefully next time I watch the show. You have ops, obviously. I, I'm sure the promenade is is definitely in there somewhere as well. Absolutely. I mean, the thing about the book is I think we have every, I'm sure someone will point out some, some location <laughs> one episode that we've, we've not covered, but we covered pretty much every major location. Wow. So it takes you from the top of the station to as far down the station as we actually got to see on the show. You get the, the ward room, you get uh, Cisco's quarters, uh, you get all the way around the promenade, some massive illustration. I was lucky enough to, uh, to walk on the promenade just as they were tearing it down. And it was an extraordinary place. Um, yeah. Enormous. Yeah. Absolutely enormous. And then also we go on to the Defiance and onto the runabouts. Oh, nice. So it really, I, you know, I really think it, it is as close, given that those sets are long gone. Yeah, uh, unfortunately. It, it's as close as being able to visit Deep Space Nine as you can get these days. How was it kind of uh, going into Quarks and, lo and looking at that from a, you know, from a book standpoint? 
Well, there's a lot of detail there that you don't necessarily see when you're watching an episode. It's not exactly in quotes, but there's a there's a thing where there's like a kind of um, station directory, and it's in all these different languages, and it has all these different uh, things. So there's like a, a kind of ATM machine and things <laughs> like that. You know, we're able to bring that out in the book, and that's the kind of stuff you realize how much work went into to making these sets feel like a real place. That's just kind of secondary when you're watching the film. You know, it's it, it's not um, the most important thing. You don't don't worry about the fact that all the bottles in Quarks have got realistic labels on them, or you know things like that. But when you're actually there, or when we, you know, we're able to take advantage of that for a book like this, is to just show you how much thought and how much work went into everything. Wow! Yeah, it's really amazing. The Defiant Boy. That must have been fun to deconstruct that and put it back together. Well, there are a few question marks about the Defiant. It's like uh, the Defiant docks at the station through the nose, and you're like, how do they get out? <laughs> Where do they walk? So there were a few uh, a few little problems like that that we had to uh, address a little bit because there's obviously no there's no place for a hatch where the ship docks. But sometimes, yeah, you that's know, the reality of TV production. <laughs> but yeah, it's, I think I, I think one of the things that people really really enjoy about Star Trek is that sense of it being real, that sense of it being a fully thought out, fully fleshed out world where, you know, if you walk down that corridor and you went through that door, there would be something on the other side. You know, it, you're not just going to open it onto a blank wall. You know, it's a, it's, a, it's a fully formed, fully thought out world. And I think that's a really big part of Star Trek's appeal. Is there anything besides the Divine and the station itself? Uh, you mentioned there the might runabouts. be a, the runabouts. Yeah. So we covered the runabouts, and there are a few things on the Defiant as well that people might not expect. So we had, uh, there are two different shuttle, shuttle pods, shuttle craft on the Defiant, um, two designs that we saw in different episodes. So they're both featured. I'm trying to think what else, the runabout, there's the whole thing about, you actually only ever saw the back of the runabout in an episode of TNG. Oh, yeah, yeah. Only in Timescape that you see the back of the runabout, but that mm -hmm. was obviously, it's meant to be the same. So mm -hmm. we were able to include that. Uh, there's an illustration showing you exactly how the, um, the interior of the runabout fits into the exterior, which I think is always, always fun. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that always makes people feel good. And then the station, yeah, it's on the station itself, it's just the sheer breadth of thought that went into it and, you know, the amount of stuff that's there. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, even tell you how to play um, Bajoran Spring Ball. Uh, <laughs> not quite all the rules, but as much as we saw on TV. Now, as far as the runabouts, did you, in your research, find out whose idea it was to name them after rivers in the, uh, in, in, on Earth? You know what? I've never bothered to ask him. I imagine that that was Michael Kuda. Mm. Um, I, you know, I'm going to have to ask him now. I, will, <laughs> um, I mean, normally something like that would be done either on the full-size mock-up. So quite often that, you know, the, with the runabouts, they had, they had studio miniature, uh, which they only had one of, and you couldn't see which one it was. Right. Which is why they put the pod on the back of it. So when there was a, there's like a fight sequence between two runabouts in the first season, and in order to make them look different, they put the, the pod on the top of one of them so you wouldn't get confused about which one was which. Ah. And then there's a full-size one. And I, it would have been Mike who would have, put the name on the full-size one. And Mike would probably have written 
a memo internally uh, suggesting it, but I don't know that one. That's a good question. I will, you know, I, you've left me with a piece of research. <laughs> well, uh, I will email Mike tonight and say, hey, who was it who made them Danube class or who was it who made them, you know, the Orinoco or the Yangtze can or whatever. Now, as far as the illustrations in the book, even though they started as maybe plans or, or even drawings, mm. uh, as far as for the book purposes, uh, did you guys have to like redo them so they would, you know, kind of fit in book form? No, well, we yeah, we were able to redesign the pages. So those those of our readers who go back the twenty three years, whatever it was, since we were doing the Star Trek fan files, will remember having seen these illustrations before, and a lot of them are all over the internet. But what we were able to do is bring it all together in one place and to clean up the design and make sure that the and make it look reasonably modern. I hope um, and give it a, a kind of freshness and a completeness. Um, that it's never had before. Um, yes. And one of the things I love about these books, I mean, we've done four of these handbooks now, is how dense they are. Mm. Just you know, when you flick through them, you just see the, the sheer volume of illustration. And, it, you know, if someone were trying to create that now, it would just be financially prohibitive. You know, it's such, a, such an investment of time and effort to create that. Mm. Um, that I think it's, you know, it's kind of a golden age of publishing and it's lovely to be able to put it all together in book form. You look back at Star Trek Deep Space Nine and it was actually, to me, one of the most diverse series ever in Star Trek history. What's your thought on looking back on, on what they left behind? <laughs> what they left behind? Conversation yeah. I've had with Ira. I think Deep Space Nine is, is a particular kind of achievement in the world of Star Trek. I did have this exact conversation with, with Ira Bear about what made Deep Space Nine quintessentially Star Trek, but also different. So, you know, it is still an optimistic show. It is still a show in which the people are noble and trying to do their very best. And it is still a show that believes that you can, that good will triumph, you know, that decency and, and all of those things are worth having, worth fighting for, and they will win. But it's also a show that recognises the, the full complexity, I think, of, I was going to say humanity, but of course half the characters aren't human, um, <laughs> but of, you know, of, of people. And it's a show that really embraced the full complexity of it, the, the, the multitude. You know, I mean, it's, it's one of the greatest lines in Deep Space Nine is, you know, about Garrick saying, you know, it was all true, especially the lies. You know, and that's, um, <laughs> you know, that's a line that wouldn't really work on any of the other shows. Um, that's right. That sort of fullness and complexity is what Deep Space Nine has, I think, that, mm -hmm. that makes it unique. More with Ben Robinson in a moment. It was a wonderful show. And, mm. you know, to have uh, a commander who's a single father... Yeah. African-American uh, and uh, to see him actually get promoted during the course of the show. Uh, he didn't start out as a captain. He ended up being there. Chief of security was a shapeshifter who was trying to find where he came from. Second officer, his first officer was uh, a woman that was part of the freedom fighters on Bajor. And as I understand it, 
originally it was going to be Ensign Rowe, but uh, she yes. but she declined the role. So, uh, and Nana Visitor should send uh, her uh, a thank you card every year for that. By the way, but <laughs> well, I love Michelle Force, but I love Nana as well. I mean, Nana. Something totally different. I was talking to Nana the other day about this, and she was talking about how she saw Kira as being someone who was suffering from PTSD. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, that complexity, I think, is it's unique, I think, in, at least in Star Trek terms, to Deep Space Nine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that the other thing I said to Ira that Ira really liked and was really pleased to hear was that it, every character on Deep Space Nine grew and changed and evolved. Oh, yeah. I think, you know, on most Star Trek shows, there was a kind of desire to, to reset the characters, to, to not change them too much. And I think that, you know, that's because of the way TV worked at the time, where no one could be guaranteed that you'd seen last week's episode. And now in this kind of, you know, it's easy to forget. I think you and I are both of an age where, you know, we remember, like, if you didn't see it when it was on, that was it. You weren't going right. to see it again. There were no... Uh, you know, there were no, there was certainly no streaming, no box sets. Nope. There weren't even VHSs. I, I, you know, I think Deep Space Nine is the beginning of a different kind of TV as well. And, and, and a great example of it still. Lots of things about it have not yet been equal. I mean, basically, uh, like, I guess, along with Babylon 5, they, they kind of really introduced audiences to long form storytelling where you had to watch every week. It was like reading a book, the whole Cardassian War arc. You know, with the Dominion, that was uh, that was really masterfully done, and and just really had you wanting to tune in every week to see exactly what happened. And uh, and in syndication, of course, they didn't uh, change the time; it was on every single week at the same time. Storytelling, yeah, serialized. Gave you that you know that that range of characters and that kind of epic scope. You know, that you had all these characters who, who weren't serious regulars, but might as well have been. Yeah. You know, I was as invested in Martok or, as, or in Garrick as I was in, you know, in Dax um, or Worf. And I think that that, you know, that sort of expansive nature where mm-hmm. the world just got bigger and more complicated and more interesting, I think is, is one of the things that T-Space Nine really had over all the other Star Treks. Yeah, I agree. I, you know, it, it holds a very special place in, in my heart and as a Star Trek series and uh, credit goes to people that were involved. I mean, certainly I, it was it was Irish show to run and he did a wonderful job. But then having somebody like Michael Piller on your staff who uh, and they all came through Next Generation and they really earned the right to to work on, on their own show. But you know, Ron Moore, of course, came over and, and wrote more amazing Klingon stories. I mean, it was just, it was a great writing staff, too. And a lot of them have moved on to other things. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, Michael, I mean, basically, Michael begged Ira to come over to, to run Deep Space Nine. <laughs> um, and I, I think, you know, the quality of that writing staff and the you know, as you say, what people have gone on to do since. So whether that's Ron or Renee, it's just a, a fantastic, 
a fantastic group of people who came together and I think, you know, were given the right environment to work in to create incredibly good stories. And I think that, you know, the really rich world that, uh, you know, you were able to, to walk back into uh, is like, massively satisfying. Totally. They did a lot of things that were first. Like for mm-hmm. the first time, we saw what an enlisted man's life was like in the, uh, he didn't go through Starfleet. He was essentially, you know, signed up. And because he had a technical background, he moved, you know, he, he got assigned to the station and that in Chief O'Brien. He was a transporter chief. He wasn't a, uh, a Starfleet graduate. And I thought that was a really cool thing. Yeah, and I think they, you know, they always loved Colin's kind of um, everyman, you know. But Absolutely. He wasn't the, uh, I don't know, I was going to say, he wasn't the kind of obvious hero from the word go, you know, that he was he was much more like a lot of us and much more, you know, I think Ira was very keen to show something that kind of was a bit more like a kind of blue collar, you know, person in the Star Trek universe because that was something that we just didn't see. That's right. Everyone's an officer. They can't all be officers. Someone, you know. Yeah, you know, and uh, Dr. Bashir kind of stumbled his way at first. And then as he kind of got his footing and as the character evolved, uh, he really became a very much an integral part of the station and keeping everyone healthy. So, uh, you know, he had some ups and downs and. You know, people have speculated about his relationship with Garrick these days. Was there something more than just friendship? But I don't think there was in my book. I think, uh, yeah, I mean, Andy, Andy Robinson will tell you that, you know, Garrick would have done. <laughs> yes. Garrick doesn't care. Garrick was up for it. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, again, a kind of complexity to the characters. Yeah. Um, that, you know, leaves those to be perfectly reasonable speculations. You know, it's not a... It, yeah, I, I agree with you. I suspect that that's not how it was. But if someone told you it was, you'd be like, oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, exactly. You know, exactly. I could see that. I yeah. can see that happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, sure. But yeah, again, it's, but again, that happens because there's a, you know, you're not looking at these characters in these simplistic terms. You're looking at, it is a much more complex and a rich kind of world where mm-hmm. anything is possible. Yep. And it was. I mean, it was uh, pretty wild. I mean, they mixed in science fiction, mythology with the Pa race and all that. I mean, it was just I mean, the whole Bajoran culture, which was, you know, basically very minimal in Star Trek The Next Generation. You knew a little bit, but mm. on this show, it really got developed. And, you know, they became one of the major uh, ra- alien races in Star Trek. Yeah, and I think they also give you a slightly different take on the, the Star Trek world. Most people are just these enthusiastic members of the Federation, you know, um, and as uh, and Quark says, you know, so it was like root beer, you know, it's like you just get sucked in. <laughs> you just, it seems so easy. You know, the great thing about the Bajorans is they had all sorts of qualities that weren't really represented in the Federation. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they are a very spiritual people. And they are also people who have been through a great deal of suffering, yeah. which is you know, not really the experience of most Federation races. You know, uh, things have been pretty good on Earth for a pretty long time by the time you get to Deep Space Nine. Yeah. Um, and they can be a little bit, um, 
don't know, smug maybe even. Um, <laughs> you know, like that's that's possible. Personally, I've always hated the Ferengi on Next Generation. It's like uh, I just don't. I just couldn't mm-hmm. hook into them. But Armin yeah. Shimmerman and Cork changed that for me. The Ferengi storylines, for some of them were like, eh, but some of them were really good. And a lot of what grounded the Ferengi was Quark and really the complexities of Quark. Kudos to him for really taking a race and, and really, that was really, didn't develop into what they initially wanted and really made it its own thing. Yeah, I think Armin has a, a lot of credit for that. I think Ira also yep. you know, very much wanted to to portray the Ferengi in a more sophisticated light. I mean, you know, Ira always said, you know, the Ferengi are the most human characters on the stage. <laughs> <You know? laughs> they're, the, they're the ones with money. Talked to Armin and he said, oh, you know, it was based on a base quark on a friend of his. Uh-huh. So, Armin, you don't want to die with all your debts paid, do you? Uh, <laughs> Yeah, you don't. So, there's a lot of, um, you know, there's a, again, there's a richness. I think, yep. you know, when they, you know, the original genesis for the Ferengi uh, was created by a writer called Herb Wright. Yes, I've talked to him about that, as a matter of fact. Uh, he passed oh, away. well, the, the long lamented lost Herb Wright. Yeah, he, um, passed away, he passed away, unfortunately. But I did talk yeah, to him yeah. years ago, and uh, I, I actually, I had that part of the, of the conversation on the Ferengi, uh, he based them on agents. <laughs> Is that yes, exactly. They're the, the sneaky guys. Yes, yeah. The, you know, the guys who smile and then stab you in the back. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but they had, you know, but they also, and funny enough, you were saying about them being based on agents, and Gene Roddenberry had this idea that they would also get the girls uh, because that was what Hollywood agents did. But that, they're much more like the Vorta, I think, in their original conception. Mm. what actually turned up on screen and Armin Armin's always said that he takes a degree of blame for this because he you know he plays the first first Ferengi effectively yeah he gave it a very exaggerated performance yeah that's right um, which he now does not like yeah (laughs) (laughs) but with Quark you know Quark is every bit as as complex and intriguing as as any of the human characters or the Klingon characters mm. or the Cardassian characters or the Bajoran characters, you know. Um, and as as Iris said, that in, in lots of ways the most human. He's the one who gets to say, I don't understand how you get by without money, you know. And <laughs> to be honest, most of us don't either. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, the the supporting actors, uh, Mark Alamiano as uh, as Gold Cat, you know, and uh, again we got to see the Kardashian uh, backstory and, and find out what they were about. And poor Jeffrey Combs, who was, <laughs> who was killed incessantly as a clone. Uh, but that was part of the fun of, oh, he got his neck cracked. Uh, was, oh, give me another one, is what they would say. <laughs> and he would walk in the room again. So it was, a, it was like a, a flying Dutchman kind of role, but it, it was... So many actors, I could go through a long list of people that recurred, Casey Biggs and so many others that recurred on the show that just really expanded that universe. I don't think we saw that as much on Next Gen. So uh, Deep Space Nine set a real good precedent. Absolutely. I mean, the the size of the supporting cast on DS9 is almost twice or three times the size of the the regular cast. 
Yeah. I mean, and, and the funny thing is you talk to any of those actors and they, they, they never knew whether they were coming back or not. Yeah. You know, you can imagine poor Jeff, like he's reading the script. He's like, oh, he's dead. I'm dead. I'm not going to work again. Are we back? Oh, hang on. I'm back again. <laughs> you know, great relief. But, uh, you know, the, the life of one of those, those actors is that you, you literally did not know whether you were going to be called back. Yeah. And just waiting to hear. And, it, you know, such an extraordinary experience. And I, you know, I heard them giving Ira a bit of a hard time about it. saying, but you must have known we liked you. We kept bringing you back. Yeah. No one told me you were going to bring me back. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember once interviewing Jeffrey and uh, somebody asked him, uh, wouldn't it be cool to see Brunt? Uh, along with your, you know, with your Vorta. And he said the logistics of it to go in and out of makeup would have never worked. Yeah, but, yeah. But that's cool. Yeah. That's very cool. Great book, Star Trek Deep Space Nine, the illustrated handbook. You guys have done it again from what I've seen. The amount of detail, you know, if you're a Star Trek fan and a Deep Space Nine fan, and to me, those go hand in hand. It's a must have. Well, oh, thank you. Our OCD is uh, our strength in this case, <laughs> I hope. Absolutely, absolutely. One of your strengths. But uh, it was great. Great to talk to you again, Ben, about this and, and to chit-chat a little bit about DS9 and uh, the impact it's having. Like so many of the Star Trek shows, like we talked about Voyager, it's standing on its own now in streaming. Mm-hmm. Where there's no, you're not comparing it to next gen being on and Voyager starting up. It's totally on its own, and people are judging it in a totally different light, especially those who never saw it when it was on syndication. So, yeah, and you can watch the whole story without having to, uh, you know, having to wait a week or yeah, absolutely, or a year or two years yes. to find out what happens. Anymore. Yeah. So yeah, I think it's a, a show that really lends itself to streaming and really benefits from that. Yeah, absolutely. Ben, thank you again. Uh, great job. And, it, it's a, and it's the Star Trek Deep Space Nine Illustrated Handbook. And we've been talking to Ben Robinson about his book. Get the Star Trek Deep Space Nine Illustrated Handbook wherever you get your books. And you can listen to this episode, essentially, without any commercial interruption on Sci-Fi Talk Plus. The catch? It's absolutely free right now. And you get a free lifetime access either. So the subscription never ends as long as you want it to keep going. All you have to do is click on this. All you have to do is click on the link in the show notes to enroll. It's that simple. For Trek Tuesday, this is Tony Tolado. Thanks for listening.